Welcome to the RICS podcast, bringing you insight and opinion on the built environment from around the world. I'm Frank Rorca. I'm a member of the management board of RICS in charge of sustainability, and I'm working daily as an innovation director at the French Federation of Real Estate Developers. I'm today joined by RICS president, Tina Payet, who is an experienced real estate investor, developer, and asset manager, and who has recently set up her own company in the circular economy, CircoTrade. So welcome, Tina, to this podcast. Well, thank you, Frank, and I'm delighted to be here and to be here with you. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Today, we are discussing the highlights from COMP28, which Tina attended, and uh, we'll be considering what this means for those who work within and care about the built environment. Tina, let's uh, dig into a topic. Um, we work in this industry for an extended period. What did sustainability in the built environment look like when you started out? All right. So that's a really kind way of saying that I'm an old hand. And, and it's true. It's true. When I started in the industry, sustainability was really a niche practice. Most people didn't even know what the word meant. It wasn't really used by many. And I would say that for real estate developers and investors and even for consultants, it was mainly limited to something we call the environmental impact statement. You know, every time you were working on a project, you had to carry out an environmental impact statement. You would give it to a specialist niche consultant who would write it up. You would file it and it was a tick in the box. And that was sustainability. It's really amazing to think. And I don't think that if you put it into perspective, the main sustainable building certifications that really, I think, brought the term of sustainability to the fore in our sector only started in the 90s. And uh, for, for Briam, it was 1990, Lee, 1998. I looked this up before the podcast. I don't know this by heart. And for HQE, which is the French certification, sustainable certification for buildings, 2004. And then it probably wasn't until well into the 2010s that, you know, certification started really making headway in the sector uh, to become where it is today, which is practically a must have for most uh, projects. Yeah. And um, that's right, because we, we went through uh, when you, you had your previous positions, uh, we went through this period. And uh, well, in, in that respect... According to you, what role does the public perceptions play in shaping the trajectory of sustainable practices in the industry? Yeah, I think, you know, Frank, in reality, I think we really underestimate how important public perception and public advocacy has been in moving our industry along the sustainable path. I mean, first of all, corporate real estate, office, uh, retail, workplace, it's the end user that is really pushing uh, the sustainable agenda. Staff of corporate tenants are requiring that workplaces embody sustainable practices and ethos. And this has even come become even stronger since the pandemic. 
and the rise of remote working because the workplace has to compete with the home office. And, and there's an interesting point on that coming out of our RACS Global Commercial Monitor, which revealed that the majority of organizations are planning to downsize, seek greater space flexibility, and prioritize ESG considerations in the selection of new office space. So it's really a conscious move towards more efficient, purpose-driven, and environmentally friendly workplaces. And that's just on, I would say, the commercial uh, real estate side. But on the residential side, it's very similar. There's the climate crisis impacting homes, along with rising energy costs due to you know, geopolitical strife. It means that people are more aware than ever about how important it is for their homes to be sustainable and to undertake retrofits. This is all really becoming in strong demand. And then finally, just to build it full circle, you know, most of corporations and uh, many governments have signed on to net zero targets and are putting out net zero legislation. And that, we can't forget, has largely come on the back of public opinion. So this is really driving. I think public opinion is much more important than we give it credit for. Yeah, okay. So, so if, if I try to, to rephrase coding for, for the auditors and, and also uh, to, to, for me to better understand, the first you said it was something nice to have, really dedicated to some experts and, and leaders. Then there was a pull from the market with a demand from tenants, from users, from people living in housing, and also these people really having a pull on the on the legislation. And now we have a lot of regulation that is coming on, especially in continental Europe. So this is something we we could see that it was it will be more and more demanding with this push and pull pushed by the regulation, pulled by the market. So if we say that, how can we support professionals to distinguish between practices that may seem good in the short term versus those that are truly sustainable in, in the long run? So I think when we're talking about sustainability, we can't really divorce sustainability and climate change from carbon today. These two have become, you know, completely linked and we need to decarbonize. And I think the best support for professionals and the best route to true sustainability is to follow whole life, a whole life carbon approach at every stage of a project and building life. This is something a whole life carbon approach basically allows the practitioner to weigh short-term investment versus long-term value and carbon efficiency in a really, you know, completely transparent and measurable manner. So I think that that is the best support that can be given to professionals today. They need to be able to back up what they're doing and how what they're doing is aligned with a decarbonization strategy that's going to lead to preserving our climate and our planet for the future. So what role do standards have in supporting these futures? Do you think that we will see what standards fit all or standards that are combined together? If I took the 
whole life cycle carbon assessment launched by RISTS linked to the uh, ICMS and IPMS standards? Or do you see uh, the, the support of standards in these sustainable futures? Well, I mean, for me, you know, standards, it sounds sort of boring and strict and, you know, all of this, oh, you know, another standard. The reality is a standard is nothing more than an agreed metric by which we can gauge infrastructure and property investment in a transparent, comparable, and reliable way. And that's really important because we can see more and more players in the industry uh, are reporting, you know, they have their bottom line and then they have their extra financial reporting. And extra financial reporting is becoming more and more focused on and scrutinized. And if in your extra financial reporting, you're talking about how much work you're doing and decarbonizing your real estate portfolio, you better have measurable identified metrics that are something that can be benchmarked and compared to your peers. And that's what a standard does. A standard really gives the industry the tool to measure, to improve, to measure, to compare. It's really important. Yeah. If I listen to you, it's the role of RICS, building trust between stakeholders based on a transparent tool, which is the standard, in fact. So, well, that, that's very interesting because then uh, uh, we can see also where it could be used in the future. And and you were, you were in attendance at the COP28 where RICS had Blue Zone access, or the auditor's Blue Zone is the place where uh, all the negotiations are taking place. Uh, did you see anything which left you particularly excited for the future or inspired when you were at this COP28. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, having observer status for RICS is, is a really big deal. It means that we get a place at the table where these really important negotiations on our climate, the climate future and climate change are happening. And I think I came away from COP28 really energized because... I saw that finally the built and natural environment has really come to the fore as being a necessary lever for climate action and a really potent facilitator for decarbonizing buildings and infrastructure and making our cities more resilient. Keep in mind that the very first time there was even a day set aside at COP for the built environment was at COP26 in Glasgow. And at that time, it was still really early days. What happened during the COP28 was absolutely, for me, incredible, because you could really see that the fact that our sector, construction and real estate industry, represents 40% of global CO2 emissions, over a third of our waste streams, uh, a good part, 50% of our natural resources are mined for the construction industry. This is really big figures. And I think it's finally the penny has dropped. In the overall uh, negotiations at COP, it is now a known factor that we cannot make it to carbon zero without 
the built and natural environment. We need to be along with, and we need to be taking our responsibility and sharing our part. And one of the things that really was, for me, the highlight was the launch of the building's breakthrough initiative. That's 28 major countries, together with the United Nations Environment Program, otherwise known as UNEP, that joined forces and pledged commitment to accelerate our sector, making near zero emissions buildings and climate resilient buildings the new normal by 2030. That's a huge commitment. And I really look forward to working alongside with RICS, working alongside the other stakeholders to embed our whole life carbon assessment standard as an essential part of this commitment. Because in order to make near zero emission buildings, we need to be able to measure that carbon in a standardized and comparable way. So energy's eyes, it's very interesting to use this word energy uh, when the, one of the main topic is energy impact and embedded carbon. But, uh, yeah, I could, I could have said very concretely, uh, Frank, very concretely. Very concretely yeah. <laughs> I was energized. <laughs> Well, but uh, you quote uh, United Nations Environmental Program and working also with the uh, uh, World Bank Council for Sustainable Development with the industry. So, RICS is a, a global leader, and and also in relation to built environment and and sustainability. How do you see uh, the cooperation, the collaboration? You quote this initiative and building breakthrough. Uh, how do you see that? Right, yes, position in cooperation with other organizations and also RICS can be uh, integrated into the support of uh, individuals and, uh, and public in this space. Yeah, you know, I, I think, I mean, it's clear no professional organization, you know, can go this route alone. This is really, uh, and, the, and the Buildings Breakthrough Initiative is, is a good example of that. You know, there are a lot of players that have been working on this and that work hand in hand together. And notably, I'm going to talk about the WBCSD, but also about WGBC, uh, lots of acronyms here. You don't change the world in the way we need it to change by trying to do it alone. This is a, a collaborative endeavor. And I think each of the professional organizations that are going to be working together will have their their special voice on things that they have the best impact and knowledge on. And for RICS, we're going to be focusing on two main topics. One is the whole life cycle carbon assessment and how that can support the measurement of decarbonizing and meeting the the near zero goal. And the other one is about training. And it's really important for our sector, which needs to be upskilled. We need to have training that will allow our professionals to really, really be supported in carrying out this huge endeavor that we need to carry out altogether. I forgot if I answered your question or not. No, no, you did, you did. And, and you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned training because well, according to you, how do you how do you feel with the the knowledge sharing and the the, the, the practitioners uh, in our business? Who RICS has one hundred and forty thousand members around the world. 
how do you feel that they are aware about these topics and, and uh, how can we as RICS help to really make them more aware and uh, and and to to in, to embed these uh, uh, indicators on carbon emissions and uh, biodiversity and environmental impact into their day-to-day business. How do you see that? You know, I actually think that probably over the last couple of years, really very recent, uh, climate change has become top of mind. I think all across the world, people in every walk of life are being impacted by climate change or have close friends, family, neighbor that are being impacted negatively by climate change. And and that's new. And uh, practically every evening when you get on to the news, there's some climate event, some extreme climate event that's being talked about. So I think we're finally past the sort of sensitivity side of this. And we're now more into how can we pragmatically rule it out? What can we do? And this is where I think the training, the different methodologies, the standard, the benchmarks, we you know with our ICS, we're also working with a coalition building the benchmark of, for the built environment carbon database, the BECD, not to use another acronym. We're also working with a consortium on the net zero emissions building standard in the UK. So, so there's a lot of cross collaborative work going on. And I think the best way to ingrain that is through education, training. This is where it's really going to be the most important. And we also need to debunk some theories, which, you know, things that people think are good practice, you know. I fully agree. And I think also we could have a role uh, with the uh, International Panel on Climate Change and the work we are conducting on uh, urban development and human settlements, because this is also where in the next round of five years of the International Panel on Climate Change, we can also have some voice to say what can be done in terms of uh, uh, working in this urban environment. So, Tina, to round off our conversation, what do the built environment and related industry look like in an ideal sustainable world? And what do we need to do to get there, in your opinion? And you have only one year period, so uh, it's right. a very short period for a long impact uh, <laughs> in the coming. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, my hope and what I will be working on as president, uh, one of the two major initiatives, uh, one, one will be decarbonization and the training and the accreditation and, you know, that whole piece around decarbonizing using our standard. And the other theme that I'm actually really, really is at, at the heart of everything we should be doing, and that is shifting away from a take-make-waste linear economy in our sector to a circular economy. And that is a huge step change. It's a huge step change, and we need to bring everyone along because this is something that does not happen in silos. We need to stop the carbon-intensive recycling of demolition materials, not to mention those that actually go 
uh, to landfill or are used uh, in a downgraded manner simply to create berms and, and road grading. But a lot of people in the industry actually think that they're doing the right thing when they say we've had all of our steel recycled. And in reality, recycling is intensely, you know, sending that steel off, damaging it all by tearing it down, mechanized tear down, and then uh, mangling it up, putting it into a skip, sending it off to be re-smelted, and then used as rebar is really, really wasteful practice, both from a carbon standpoint and from a resource standpoint. So we need to start reusing materials via the tenets of the circular economy. And I think standards can support that. If you look at, there's a a fairly recent British standard for reused steel that all of a sudden is really supporting the industry to take up more reused steel. And, and I think in another way, best practices, really showcasing, getting a, a, a group of doers around the table, industry players that are real estate developers, investors, asset managers that will commit to reusing materials to increasing the amount of reused materials that they're going to deploy in their projects and then measuring the outcomes, supporting them with the sort of tools that they need, working on advocacy with the tax authorities, with the banks, with the insurers to ensure that these practices can become mainstream. This is my strongest wish for 2024. If I if I understood it, it's a way to say, well, we have started the efficiency in the energy use, and we should have the same thinking about material use and, and the life cycle of the materials and uh, reuse it before recycling it. So it's uh, it's a way of uh, also being efficient in the way we built, in the way we rebuilt, and we can also have the renovation wave. Uh, in reusing the materials before recycling, so uh, that's uh, that's a very very big program because uh, it took maybe a decade to implement the efficiency uh, in the energy industry and the way we use it and the way we can use the wasted energy for other stakeholders. So uh, I hope that it will not take a decade and only one year, Tina to shift industry to reuse before recycling. Frank, I will do my best to bring that about. But, you know, we're just a small piece in a very large machine, which is the built and natural environment uh, industry. And we all need to work together. We need everyone to step up. I think we can't underestimate the impetus of the moment. I think the fact that, you know, the takeaway from COP28 is that nearly every country in the world has now agreed to transition away from fossil fuels is a huge step in the right direction. It may not go as far as most people, some people might have wanted it to, but it's a huge step in the right direction. There is an impetus today that we've never had before that I hope will compress those 10 years into maybe two, three years, maybe less. I wish you the best and, and the success for this, uh, for this wish. 
So, thank you for listening to the RICS podcast. Or should we develop this conversation further? Let us know your thoughts on social media or directly via the form on the RICS.org podcast page. Thank you very much, Tina, again. Thank you, Frank, and thank you, listeners. It was a pleasure. <laughs>